You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. So turn your Bible to John chapter 13. We're going to be in verse 31 to the end of the chapter this morning. Thank you, Josh, for pinch hitting for Adam, who's on a much needed vacation. Be back with us next week. Thank you for faithfully stewarding uh, your responsibility. And thank you for Hannah for that powerful word. Indeed, is an important word. Uh, The gospel does no one any good who has not heard it. And that's why we do missions. And that's why we take the gospel to the nations. And we're grateful for you and for all of our missionaries. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time as we come to this passage. Lord, thank you that we know you indeed as the Ancient of Days, as you have revealed yourself in Daniel 7. But the only reason we know you in that way is because of the the Son of Man who came and reconciled us to you by his infinite price. And then, Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who applied that work to our hearts And so, Father, we come to you this morning, the Ancient of Days, through the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit. And we pray that even as we hear this text preached, we could behold you and that you would enlighten our eyes and rejoice our hearts in the gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul Miller, in his wonderful book, The Loving Life, tells about a missionary friend of his who serves in Southeast Asia who is trying to translate the word agape. We, our English word love, the Greek word agape, into the native language. And so he tentatively came up with the word pa, P-A. But he realized that this word was not comprehensive enough to really represent what agape love is. And then one day, he was crossing this flooded river on a makeshift ferry uh, with several natives, and uh, they were swept up into the currents. Now, he was safe, but all the others were at risk of drowning. And so he risked his life, and he saved all of these natives that had been on that, that, that ferry. And then one of the natives came to him later and said, what you did was che, C-H-E. And then he realized that's the word. He said, this native said, what you did was che because you were in there with us. You embodied, you you came in embodied. You, You sacrificed yourself from the inside. With Che, you have incarnational love. With Pa, you can love at a distance. You can remain safe without a lot of sacrifice. But with Che, it requires your life. It requires embodiment. It requires sacrifice and vulnerability. That's really what Jesus has been teaching his disciples, 
just hours from the cross. I mean, he is getting close to the cross. And since the beginning of John 13, it's been Thursday night of Passion Week. Now, many uh, religious traditions uh, call this time Maundy Thursday. Maybe you've heard that term, Maundy Thursday. Where do we get that term, Maundy Thursday? Well, it's from the Latin word for new commandment. And so what we have here in this passage is a new commandment. Now, any commandment given to believers in the Bible comes off the heels of what God has accomplished to restore us sinners to himself. In other words, all the commandments are grounded and preceded by grace. And, and every other religion in the world is a reversal of that. So in Christianity, I am accepted by God through the finished work of Jesus, through the accomplishment of Jesus, therefore I obey in gratitude. Every other religion in the world teaches I obey, therefore I am accepted. Well, we recognize the accomplishment hasn't fully come yet. Yes, Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness, but in a few hours, he's going to go to the cross. And he's communicated that to the disciples through the act of washing their feet. But now, what he's going to teach them was that what the foot washing was to symbolize was his cross where he would make every believer clean. Indeed, God's glory is most displayed by the cross. That's what he's about to teach them in John chapter 13. Look with me in verse 31. When he had gone out, who is he? Well, that's Judas. If you remember back last week, he received the morsel of bread and he immediately left the other disciples because he's going to tell the officials where Jesus is so that they can arrest him. So Judas is possessed by the devil at this point and he has gone out and now everyone else in the room, the upper room, is clean, so to speak. That's the language that's been used in John chapter 13. Uh, they are believers, in other words. And so now Jesus, for the first time, is speaking only to believers. There's no unbelievers in this room. All 11 of those disciples are believers. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And so Judas' departure appears to signal that the events are underway. They're about to be sped up, so to speak. Now, what does he mean when he says, now is the Son of Man glorified and God glorified in him? Well, he says in verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What is Jesus referring to here? Well, the clue lies in his self-designation as the Son of Man. Twelve times in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus is seen as the Son of Man. Where does this language come from? Well, it comes from the same place where that song we just sang came from. Daniel chapter 7, a sermon we looked at 
on June the 6th in the evening service. And in Daniel chapter 7, you have this figure known as the Son of Man, all right? It's one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. And he ascends triumphantly to the throne room of the Ancient of Days. So the Ancient of Days is the Father, and he ascends to the throne room of the Ancient of Days after the beast, that is the enemies of God, have been defeated. And here's what it says in Daniel 7, 13. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So he came to redeem all peoples and languages and nations. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so what Daniel sees as just a piece of the puzzle is that God is going to restore all things, but Daniel doesn't understand fully how this is going to be. What's not clear in Daniel 7 is that the ascent of the Son of Man to the throne of the Ancient of Days would take place only after a descent. Daniel's not clear on that. A descent into a world in bondage to the spiritual forces of evil, but only after this Son of Man has defeated these spiritual forces. In fact, outside of the Old, uh, New Testament, when you read about this Son of Man figure, it's only associated with glory. That's the emphasis. What Matthew, Mark, and Luke teach us is that this Son of Man will suffer. The Son of Man must suffer many things. You know that verse. What John does is that he connects Daniel 7 and the glory with the suffering of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In other words, the Son of Man will be glorified and all of these things will come to pass through his suffering. That's the important uh, part of what Jesus is saying here in John 7. And so when Jesus says that the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, all of that that I have just shared is in play. Now, there's three separate times in John that Jesus refers to his death as the hour of glorification, which is really ironic language when you think about how humiliating a Roman cross was. The first time we saw this was in Daniel or in John chapter 12, when Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he immediately began to speak of a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying. And then he prays, Father, glorify your name. And so he's relating the death of that grain of wheat to the glory of the Father. And then in chapter 17 in that high priestly prayer, which we'll come to in a few weeks, he prays, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. 
And sandwiched between those two texts is John chapter 13. What is noteworthy about all three of these passages is that the glorification will be of the Father and of the Son together. But how will that be so? Well, first of all, let's just think about the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. How will the Son of Man be glorified through the cross? Well, He will be glorified by conquering sin, death, and the devil at an infinite price. His humiliation unto death, taking the wrath of God. In other words, at His own personal expense, He is going to reverse the tsunami of destruction caused by the earthquake of sin in the Garden of Eden. He's going to fix everything, but at a humiliating, infinite price. That's how the Son of Man will be glorified. And He will be raised when that happens. How about the, the glory of the Father? Well, you could say that every attribute of the Father. In fact, you could say of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for that matter because they all three work in tandem. Every attribute of God is in, on display at the cross and in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just give you a couple of examples. The Father's justice is glorified by the cross because until the cross, the question would have likely been raised does God really take sin that seriously? In fact, Paul writes in Romans 3.25, God had passed over former sins. So does God really take sin that seriously? It appears there are many who get away with their sin. And the cross says that he does. That's how just he is, that he would nail his own son to the cross. How about the love of God? The love of God is glorified in the cross. So great is God's love and that it is glorified in the cross in that in the New Testament, when you read about the love of God, you'll be hard-pressed to read about the love of God without it referring to the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's referring to the cross. How about 1 John 4? This is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. The cross is the greatest display of the love of God. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us. He showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How about the faithfulness of God? That's another attribute of God that is glorified at the cross throughout the Old Testament. God promised a permanent solution to sin, to death, and the devil. In fact, the prevailing question of the Old Testament became in time, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Where's the one who's going to reverse this threefold enemy, this problem. And when Jesus came, John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God. The cross glorifies the faithfulness of God. How about the wisdom of God? Well, God in his wisdom decreed a plan 
that could express, get this, simultaneously his holiness in judgment and his love and mercy in pardon, in forgiveness. It's a simultaneous thing where he demonstrates his holiness in judgment and his love in pardon. How would he do that? Through divine self-substitution for sinners. Indeed, in spite of the eternal blessings that all of us as believers receive through the cross, the greatest significance about the cross is that it glorifies the Father and it glorifies the Son. And mention of Jesus' glorification, as, as you see here, prompts him to focus on one of the central burdens he has for the disciples. We'll even see this even more clearly next week in chapter 14 as he knows his time of departure is at hand. He's preparing his disciples for his departure. Now look with me in verse 33. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I'll also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. Now, strictly speaking, we are not Jesus' children. We are the children of the Father, and Jesus, as Hebrews tells us, and Romans 8 tells us, we are his elder, or he is our elder brother, all right? So this is terms of endearment. This speaks of his tenderness, his love, his affections, for those he knows will depart from him and flee from him and separate themselves from him in just a few hours. But in John chapter 7, as Jesus says here, he, he had told the unbelieving Jews, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to, to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. He was telling them that... They would not be able to follow him. It will be too late, and they would be judged. Well, his message to the disciples, in one sense, seems very similar, with one significant difference. He's going to tell his disciples in chapter 14, as we're going to see next week, that he is going to prepare a place for them. That's the difference. Now, this is what's important here. That preparation, he's going to prepare a place, it's going to require his cross. Because sinners can't come into God's place without being prepared and fit for him. So Jesus is going to prepare a place, and it requires his infinite suffering. All right? Such love that he has for us. But until that day where we come into our inheritance as believers, Jesus gives a crucial word, and this gets at the heart of what he is saying as we close out John chapter 13. So we've seen that God's glory is most displayed by the cross. What Jesus is now going to teach every disciple is that God's glory is most magnified by our cruciform love. Now, let me just explain that sermon division a moment. We, we can't add to God's glory. It's infinite. 
All right? I've heard people say, and I've said it myself, give him glory. We can't give him glory. He already has it. He has infinite glory. But we can magnify his glory like a, a telescope can magnify a planet. It can make something that looks small to the naked eye look really big. Look what it really is. All right? And so God's glory is magnified in us by what I call cruciform love. Now, what is cruciform love? That's simple. It's love in the shape of a cross. That's what cruciform means. Love in the shape of a cross. So when I use the word cruciform, it's a Latin term for in the shape of the cross. So look with me in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. Now he's writing this or he's speaking this to the disciples and to us that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, it's very conceivable, very likely, that one of the reasons that Jesus washed their feet is because all 12 of the disciples had, had bypassed the water basin. All right? Just like teenagers bypass a sink that's full of dishes. All right? Or at least some teenagers. And Jesus here, by washing their feet, was demonstrating to them that a new situation would be brought about by the highest expression of love that has ever been seen in the history of man or would ever be seen in the history of man, his cross. Now, this is the first of two times. We'll see it again in John chapter 15, 12, where he commands his disciples to love one another, which tells us if we need commanding, two things. It's not natural to us, but he's given us the resources to do it. All right? Two times he's going to command us to love one another in this upper room, but this is the only place he calls it a new command. Now, to love one another is not new. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, the people of God were called to love their neighbor as they love themselves. So maybe you've asked yourself the question, what's new about it? This new command. Well, for one, it's for new recipients. Under the old covenant, they were commanded to love other Israelites. All right? They were to love one another. It's easy to love in an echo chamber. But given that Jesus was dying for the world, this new command is that now your love expands beyond your little comfort zone. It expands beyond the people who look like you. It expands beyond the people who have the same interest and hobbies as you. It expands to every tribe and tongue. It expands to the world. Not only does it have a new recipient in view, this new command has a new standard. 
Man, this standard is high. Notice, just as I have loved you. Jesus loved unto death on the cross becomes the standard for our love for others. That raises the bar considerably, don't you think? The measure under the old covenant, the measure of their love for their neighbor was they were to love their neighbor as themselves. Just like we hear about the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But now the standard is not that. The standard is Jesus' love for them, just as I have loved you. And how did Jesus love us? He loved us to death. The atoning death of Jesus for sinners, for enemies. Now, I'm not making that up. Romans 5 makes that very clear. For ingrates, for people who are naturally ungrateful, people like us, his atoning death for us is the standard now, the new commandment for loving others. Now, this doesn't mean that they you're likely going to die physically loving those that God has put in your sphere of influence. But it does mean that true Christian love and everything else is a parody is incarnational. It's embodied. It's sacrificial. It's a dying to convenience. It's a dying to comforts. It's a dying to pride, a dying to self for the sake of those who don't deserve it. That's the new commandment. And so it has new recipients. It has a new standard. But thankfully, we also have a new resource. In just a few minutes, in John chapter 16, Jesus is going to say to them, verse 7 of chapter 16, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. We will have a new resource. The helper is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent. He is the third person of the Trinity. And so the Son is eternally generated from the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And He comes as our helper. And what does he help us to do? He helps us to live the Christian life. He brings resurrection life to bear in our impotence, in our weakness, in our frailty. He gives us the power by giving us new desires, new inclinations, new life, new sensitivity, new love. He does things that are not natural to us, in and through us. That's the helper. So we are given a new resource. And so this new command has new recipients. This new command has a new standard. And this new command has a new resource that every Christian has, the Holy Spirit.
And notice verse 35. And to be honest with you, I've struggled with this verse. It's a hard verse, but it's true. By this, by this. It's not church attendance. Though church attendance is wonderful and important. It's not reading your Bible. That's important. It's not theological knowledge. That's important. But notice, it's by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, cruciform love, that is love in the shape of the cross, because we're to love like Jesus. Francis Schaeffer says that through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They've worn marks on the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks. But there's a much better sign. Love is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. And so for us, for every disciple, every believer, the question is not, do I love this person? The question is, how do I love this person? What does it look like? This is how the world will know that we are Christ followers. But with all good things, there are parodies. And we see this parody at the end of this passage. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, I, lo I love Simon Peter because I think I see myself more in him than any other Disciple, He needed peppermint socks because he kept his foot in his mouth, didn't he? <laughs> Lord, where are you going? It's almost like he ignored that part about the love. Have <laughs> uh, you ever been in a conversation with someone and, and you, you, you've been going 10 minutes on something and then they, it's like they've completely lost track of what you said and they go back to something you said 20 minutes ago. Where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And he believed that. And he would. But he wasn't ready for that yet. Because Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, amen, amen. One of 25 times John says this, or Jesus says it in John. I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. That speaks to Jesus's. In this point, he's accessing his divine nature, and, and he knows that not only will Peter deny him three times, it's going to be after uh, the rooster crows. Jesus knows that Peter's love is not cruciform yet. There's a kind of love, it's a parody love. And I think it's most often seen in churches. I think cruciform love is more rare than we, we would care to admit. And I think that's why this passage here at the end, at the end is important because I think that it's likely many Christians 
are looking in the mirror when they see Jesus, uh, Peter's words here. Jesus knows that Peter's problem at this point is that he is focusing more on his love for Jesus than on Jesus' love for him. In other words, that creates a kind of self-sufficiency, all right, and spiritual pride. William Vanstone, in his book called Love's Endeavor, Love's Expense, he describes non-costly parody love. You see it often with religious people. You see it often in churches. And he says that one of the chief characteristics of parody love, in other words, it masquerades as cruciform love, but it's not truly cruciform. He says one of its chief characteristics is its limitation. Its limitation. It can only love so far and so wide and so high and so deep, but it's limited. Cruciform love, though, it's characterized by being limitless, self-giving sacrifice to the point of great, significant vulnerability. Peter's love at this point is going to be exposed, right? It's having severe limitations. But he doesn't know that yet. And that's why he overspeaks. And the reason he doesn't know that yet is he hasn't been tested, but he will be. And the Lord tests us to, to show us where we are spiritually. And this is seen in Luke's account, for instance. Just before this takes place, just before this conversation, the disciples, and we have to conclude that Peter was on the forefront of this discussion, they're debating on which of the disciples is the greatest. And then Mark tells us in his account that Peter not only claimed that he would die for Jesus... But he boasted in chapter 14, verse 29 of Mark, even though they all fall away, I will not. He throws the other disciples under the bus. I know I'm more committed to you than the others. That's what he, by the way, who, Mark wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But historians tell us, tradition tells us that Peter was looking over his shoulder as he wrote that. Peter was his human source for his account. And so Peter wanted Mark to get that out because later on he, we know he would be brought to the end of himself. Peter had too high a view of himself because he was focused on his love for Christ rather than Christ's love for him. But he also had too naive a view of spiritual warfare. In Luke's account as well, chapter 22, 31, Jesus says to Peter at this moment, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Ultimately, it would take the cross to change Peter. It would take Jesus restoring Peter by his mercy to change Peter. That's in John 21. 
And it would take the gift of the Holy Spirit, the helper, to change Peter. And later he would write, as we read this morning, and it's this reason I read that text this morning, in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, Peter writes, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all, since love covers a multitude of sins. Where did he learn that love covers a multitude of sins? He learned it from the love of his Savior who loved him with the ultimate cruciform love. And it had a life-changing impact on Peter. Tradition tells us that later, 30 years later, some 30 years later, Peter would be arrested and he would be condemned to a Roman cross and he would tell the officials he was not worthy to die like his Savior. And so they turned him upside down and he was crucified upside down. Jesus said to him, you will follow me afterwards. That was fulfilled. And it was fueled by cruciform love. Now let me close with just a, a three or four thoughts on cruciform love. And we'll be done. First of all, let me define it. Cruciform love is the unswerving commitment to the redemptive good of another at the expense of self. Now notice redemptive good. You can love someone physically and not have their redemptive good in mind. But your cruciform love, you're concerned about their soul. You're concerned about their eternity. You, you can do physical things for them. You can care for them. But if you're not caring for their soul and their eternity, you're not loving them with cruciform love. Cruciform love is the redemptive good or the, or the unswerving commitment to the redemptive good of another at the expense of self. You're absorbing the debt that person owes for that person's redemptive good. Second, and this is not comfortable for us to hear, but it's true. The most strategic stage to show that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ is around those who are most difficult to love. Again, Jesus said, it's by this you will know, the world will know that you're my disciple. It doesn't take omnipotence to love people in your echo chamber. The people who make you comfortable, the people you have things in common with. But those who you really struggle with, to even like, that's the big stage. Sports pundits like to call those athletes who love the big lights, you know, the bright lights. They call them moths. Why do they like moths? We call them moths because moths are attracted to light. And so the big-time athletes love the big stage. They love the bright lights to show who they are. The big stage for the disciple is being surrounded by people who are impossible to love apart from Christ's redeeming love and the gift of the Holy Spirit. What that means is 
We can't just surround ourselves with people like us, people we find comfortable. We must recognize that the cliquish life does not magnify the love of Christ and God's glory. And that's what we tend to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with spending time with people that you have a lot in common with, but it can become an idol, all right? And there's no demonstration of the glory of God in that, if that's all it is. Third, the cruciform love that we're talking about here is proactive love rather than mere reactive love. There's a lot of people in churches, they're not really going to approach you. If you approach them, they will be nice. I mean, I'm glad they're nice. I'm glad they're kind. It's better than not being nice or kind, but that's not proactive love, which means it's not cruciform love. Cru cruciform love is proactive love. Jesus pursued us. So you'll hear someone say, you know, I love that church. I went there and found community. That's reactive love. Cruciform love is I went to that church and by my cruciform love created community. Cruciform love always creates community. That's what Jesus did. And fourth, it means being willing to have a life complicated by the needs and the struggles and the messes of others and persevering in that. It's the way of Jesus. And Jesus said some of his last words before the cross, it's how the world will know you are his disciples. But let me close with this ground of hope. Your hope is not in loving like Jesus, because if it is, we're all in a world of hurt. In fact, our love alone, even the most loving person in this room, and there's a lot of loving people here at Lakeview, but even the most loving person in this room if your love is all there is, that's not a bridge to God. That's a barrier to God. Because there's been only one expression of pure love untainted by ulterior motive that's ever been seen in the history of the world. And that is the self-giving love in Jesus Christ on the cross for undeserving sinners. And that is the ground of our hope. And so if you recognize, I don't love like Jesus is calling us to love here. Let your conviction drive you to the cross. All right? Let it drive you to the cross where you find forgiveness for failing to meet up or match up to the new commandment. But don't stay there. Let the Holy Spirit take you from the cross 
to love the unlovely. That's how the world will know we are Jesus' disciples. And as Josh and musicians come forward, I would also like to make an appeal to those of you who are not yet Jesus' disciples. If you're not a disciple of Jesus right now, you can be. But you need to recognize that the reason the cross was necessary is because not only do you fail to love according to God's standard, you fail to obey according to God's standard. You fail to do anything according to God's standard. And that's how the love of Christ is so communicated clearly to us. Because till sin be bitter, Christ's love will not be sweet. But if you recognize you fall short, you're a sinner, and you recognize Jesus Christ demonstrated the greatest cruciform love by bearing my sin in His body on the tree and was raised that I might have forgiveness of sins. The Bible says you can become a disciple by repenting of that sin and fleeing to Christ. Won't you do that this morning as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.